It's February rambling time. Spring updates, variety trials, soil potassium mining, and more coming up next. Welcome to the Arkansas Organic Chronicles podcast, where we discuss anything, everything, and all things related to certified organic food right here in Arkansas. I'm Joe Hannon, production instructor at Calf Farm School. As we get going and talking about the February rambling, all I gotta say is, you know, this is the second time we're recording this episode because I had a faulty microphone problem. 100% user error. Hopefully the second time comes out just as good. So let's get into talking about what's going on this spring. So a couple things I want to talk about today. Spring updates around weather, variety trials, potassium mining, and a few other odds and ends. Let's start with spring is here-ish, maybe, sort of, kind of, yeah, no, maybe, I don't know. So last episode, we talked about warm spring events, pushing plants emergency, or pushing plants emerging earlier from winter winter dormancy earlier and earlier each year, and uh, this year looks to be shaping up about the same as the last couple of years. I think for Scythia, plus or minus about three days blooming at my house. Looks like the grapes are already pushing bud and moving along for the spring. So while, yeah, it's great having these 80 degrees, and yesterday was 80, and the day before was 80, and tomorrow was 80, we definitely still have five or six weeks before we actually get past our frost-free day. So, you know, definitely have a little bit of concern as we look forward into March and early April that we could have some definite issues here. So looking at the forecast over the next two to four weeks, it definitely looks like we're going to continue to be warmer than normal um, Again, looking for the next couple of weeks. Longer term, looking into summer, it's really tough to say what that looks like temp-wise, at least for the spring. But looks like we could be leaning more towards a bit wetter than normal. Right now, we are kind of in the... we're Well, right now we're in an El Nino or at the tail end of an El Nino. Moving towards neutral and possibly La Nina. Really, the models are not super consistent or not really telling us one way or the other if we're moving towards La Nina. So really, that makes it hard to determine what summer is going to look like because we don't have any strong indicators there. If we go neutral or if we go into, well, if we go into La Nina, then it might mean we're going to be warmer and drier. So basically drought coming into summer here. Um, but again, doesn't the models aren't saying yay or nay really at this point. So we'll have to just kind of stay tuned as we get through spring to see how things are shaping up. Really that doesn't probably impact us a whole lot because we're still going to have our standard irrigation systems and we're still going to do everything like we would if it was a drought or a floody wet year. So that probably doesn't change too much. What is interesting though is if you took a gamble this spring to plant tomatoes and cucumbers in the greenhouse for early season market, well, that gamble is probably paying off because you're not paying propane. You're not pay, paying for wood usage right now to keep those plants warm. And I know there are several people that have knee high or above tomatoes out in the ground, which means pretty early production on those type of crops. So really right now we might be looking at ongoing warm 
spring, maybe a little bit wetter than normal. Definitely have pretty much 100% chance of moving below freezing at some point between now and our frost-free date in early April. And beyond that, the models are not seen one way or the other. So as we go and look into March and April and ongoing monthly rambles, we'll touch base on weather and kind of provide updates as, as we go. So at this point, summer is, is TBD. Just don't know. So another question I wanted to approach or tackle today was, why don't we do variety trials anymore at the university? This is a question that I've gotten recently here since moving to Arkansas. It's a question I used to get all the time in Iowa. And there's definitely some very good reasons for this. The, the reason, the primary reason is where are the funding sources going or where are, the, where are the funding sources at for this? And we used to get a lot of money from the states going into our universities, going into our extension to do direct local research that is very relevant for farmers but over the years states have been giving your universities less and less money and that's kind of a trend across the country and so something's got to give if you don't have the money you can't just suddenly go out and do research trials or variety trials and things like that from from state funding um to a because you just don't have the money to buy the seed and pay the land and pay for the people to to, to do it then on the other side of things, the federal government, particularly the USDA, has changed how they are putting money into public or to meet public needs and public good. So rather than giving universities and extension units money with basically an un, undetermined how to use this money, go do your research and take five or 10 or 20 years to get to whatever you're studying. The USDA now has taken a very targeted, focused approach based on identified needs, which is, you know, coming from farmers and industry around the country. And they're putting larger chunks of change into that direct need in order to quickly move the needle on that identified need. So we saw that, you know, years ago when we started the Sustainable Ag Research and Education or SARE program, we saw that with the uh, the USDA putting a lot of funds into the produce safety rule and, and really pushing farmers to be better about, more proactive about preventing food safety issues on the farm. And now we see that with the USDA putting a lot of money in towards supporting farmers and supporting education to get more farmers to move towards certified organic. And so this is great because we can move the needle a lot faster. You get the best of the best and the brightest and smartest people all trying to move that needle very quickly. But on the downside, you lose things like the ability to do variety trials. That's not the stuff that they're funding anymore, so you can't do that. And then you lose the, the opportunity for a researcher that may be super, super smart in one, one field of agriculture and being able to spend their entire lifetime focusing on that area where that may not pay off in five years it may not pay off in 10 years but 20 down 20 years down the road they have huge breakthroughs that are industry changing and so you kind of lose lose that side of things so it's just kind of a trade-off of how that money is being spent that's really why we don't see a lot of variety trials happening anymore it's because how that funding models have changed but again, when we look at USDA putting money towards big picture projects, they also expect big changes right away. So I'm on the top program, which is supporting the 
increase of organic farms across the country while six months down the road they want to see impacts they want to see changes they want to start seeing little incremental changes with or movement of that needle and that's the that's the expectation that you that they have by going towards that way of, of funding things money doesn't go into a black hole but also you don't get to do things like variety trials so how can we do variety trials here in the state one model that a lot of places are are using is what's called citizen science perfect example of this is something that uh, master gardeners in arkansas did last year they were doing pumpkin variety trials and all america selections does this for determining their best or their awarding variety uh, vegetables and flowers aas selection and what they're doing is or what that citizen science is is taking a whole bunch of farmers within an area and saying you grow these let's let's say we're going to do pumpkins here just because that's what the master gardeners did a couple years ago you grow one plot of each of these 10 different pumpkins and take good notes and collect some yield data and then another farmer does that exact same thing and just plants one row of it or, or 125 foot or 150 foot or 100 foot what you know whatever is relevant for the crop that they're looking at and then another farmer does it and another farmer does it and so all of a sudden you get like 15 different farmers all growing these same 10 different pumpkins and collecting notes and collecting yield information and and sharing back to a central source and that gives you across that the area of testing so you know if we're doing this just across arkansas across arkansas if there's one or two clear winners anybody else can go back and grab that variety and say this pumpkin is probably going to grow on my farm because it grew on these other 15 farms that were it was tested on around the state and so that's kind of the citizen science model all american selections does that again that exact same thing but they do it across the country and on an even bigger scale so if you grab an all america selection flower winner vegetable winner you can pretty much guarantee it's going to grow locally on your farm Again, there's nothing really in the works for for us to look at doing some organic variety trials this year. Just kind of one of those, somebody asked me and it was already February and everybody's got their planning type stuff done. But definitely something to maybe think about as an industry if this is something that is of interest for you. It's something that, you know, a lot of people put a little bit of time in and you get big value out of it versus one person putting in a ton of time and some value comes out of it because it's only relevant for that one local region where it was tested versus you know testing across a whole state so props to the the master gardeners that looked at pumpkins and have done uh multiple citizen science projects around the state the last couple of years it always seems like they have some pretty good good data to share with the folks and you know it's something that we could look at doing down the road if there's there's interest Okay, so that's enough rant on why we don't do variety trials anymore. Let's have a short rant on the new purple GMO tomato that was just come onto onto the market. So I believe Rutgers just released a new GMO tomato. It was designed to have high anthocyanins, which think purple color, so blackberries and blueberries have high anthocyanins and, you know, those anthocyanins are supposed to be good towards preventing cancer and really my only my only thought really on this one is why just just why 
when we look at GMO vegetables that have come onto the marketplace over the last 20 years, they almost always unanimously get tremendous pushback from the market and are not wanted by by the consumer. And so this is kind of one of those things that just kind of catches me off guard of why is this here? What was the need? And was this really going to take off and go into a market in a time where the market is even stronger than ever before saying, no, this is not what I want. I don't have a whole lot to say on that one. Just kind of a confused thought of what's going on here. We'll, we'll maybe come back and address that one more later. In all fairness, I didn't do tons of homework on it. It didn't seem to have any super awesome disease resistance or anything that really makes it stand out from other tomatoes. But we'll see once it hits the market. Finally, I wanted to talk a little bit today about soil potassium mining. As we're coming into spring, I'm seeing more and more articles showing up in farm magazines and showing up in discussion boards and and all those different groups about potassium mining. And I thought it was really important to talk about what is this and how could it long-term impact organic farmers. Um, this really has definitely potential for long-term impact, and I think it's worth taking some time to to talk about. So when we talk about fertilizer, actually, so let's go back. In 2020, the price of fertilizer started skyrocketing for reasons we all know. And when we think about fertilizer, typically what we're thinking about is nitrogen fertilizer, our primary, one of our primary inputs on a, on a farm. But when we're looking at fertilizer, it's also two other macronutrients and nutrients that we use in large amounts. And that is potassium and that is phosphorus. And so potassium is really interesting because it's not only a fertilizer for our plants, it's also integral in the physical structure of our soil. And so as our soils age, the physical structure changes, and that's really directly related to depletion of potassium from that physical clay in our soil. And so let's take a look at really what that kind of means and what that does and how we and how we got to this potassium mining. So back in 2020 when farmers were seeing increased fertilizer prices, they were also seeing low commodity prices across everything. And so they were trying to figure out ways to balance their budget. And so one of those things that they were trying to do was cut back on their use of potassium fertilizer for short term, thinking one or two years, they can get by without putting a lot of potassium on. And they have really good reason for doing that. When you look at potassium, you have basically three different places where potassium can be stored in the soil. It can be stored in the actual physical structure of the soil. And so think of that potassium that's in that physical structure of the soil as like money that you put in long-term investments. It's there, but it's not real easy to get access to. Give it some time and give it some effort. You can get it out of that long-term investment and put it into your checking and savings account. But again, it's, it's a little harder to get at those type of funds. Same way with clay and that physical structure. So then the other clay that we can have, or the other potassium that we can have, is on the outside of that clay structure. So it's just like attached to the molecule, so or attached to the clay. So it's there, and think of that potassium as like 
potassium that is or money that is in your savings account. It's there. You can get it when you need it, but it takes a little bit of effort. You got to log into your phone app or log into your computer and make the transfer from savings to checking. So it's there. It takes a little effort to get to, but that's another place where potassium can be stored and it's it's available to the plant basically within you know within a season and then you have the third place which is potassium is basically in water type solution so it's readily available for plant uptake so think of that potassium like your money in your checking account you can just swipe the card and there it is and away you go and you've got access to it so again you got potassium that is in readily available kind of medium-term storage and long-term storage. And that long-term storage is really the key to this potassium mining story. And so when farmers were short on money or or needing to save money, they were hoping or wanting to pull money or pull money, (laughs) pull potassium out of that long-term physical structure of that clay and use that for their crop production rather than supplying some sort of fertilizer source of potassium to feed their plants and so if you do that for a year not a huge deal you're not going to physically change that structure you're just going to be pulling some potassium out and next year you can go make up for it and just put in increased amount of potassium onto the soil for as your fertilizer program and move some of that potassium back into that structure but when you do this long term, so if we're doing this for 2020, 2021, 22, 23, 24, what starts to happen is you're pulling too much potassium out of that structure and you're breaking down that actual clay structure. So let's put this into another analogy. Let's look at a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So we've got a PBJ sandwich and it's tasty and wonderful and all its gloriousness in that whole on sandwich format. So in that sandwich format, the bread of that sandwich is your clay and the PBJ is your potassium. And so what we're doing is if that we're pulling that uh, potassium out of that, that clay PBJ sandwich structure, eventually what happens is that structure falls apart and we don't have a sandwich anymore. We've got two pieces of bread with a little bit of peanut butter and jelly on it. So it's physically different than what it was in the sandwich form. And unfortunately, once you've once you've gone from that nice sandwich form and gone into in two individual pieces of bread with a little bit of PBJ on it, you can never make that sandwich again. It's done. It's gone. You can never go back to it. And once you've gone into those individual pieces of bread or individual sheets of clay, you're losing ability to hold potassium you're losing ability to hold other nutrients and you're losing physical structure and quality of that soil and so that's part of the natural aging process over eons it takes to age a soil like that and go from from sandwiches to individual sheets but if we're mining potassium out of there and we're doing it hot and heavy over a long period of time we can artificially make that happen So now we've got these two pieces of bread with a little bit of residual PBJ on it. And now we give it to our two-year-old niece or nephew and they take that sandwich and they lick off the PBJ because, well, it's not a PBJ sandwich. It's a piece of bread with some stuff on it. And they really just want the peanut butter and jelly anyway. 
So they lick off the remaining peanut butter and jelly off that sandwich. And now you've just got a piece of bread. And that piece of bread represents further degradation of that soil, the next stage of degradation of that soil. We just got that piece of bread, and now we can just maybe a little bit of residual peanut butter and jelly kind of in some of the nooks and crannies and edges of it, but really not what we started with originally. And further, we have lower quality soil, lower productivity, and further reduction in our quality of our soil. And so, again, once now we've gotten to the third stage, we can no longer go back to the piece of bread with some peanut butter jelly on it. Now we just have a piece of bread with a little bit of stuff on it. And so it's not, you can't go back to that higher quality or that better quality of, of form. And so when we're talking about potassium mining, that's where the risk here is. And when we look at where we're at in Arkansas, our soils are already really old, old soils. So they're already in that sheet format. We don't want to do any further damage that could make them go into that just piece of bread format and really degrade those any any further. And so a lot of folks where we're seeing that potassium mining that's occurring in a lot of our corn belt up in Iowa and Illinois and Kansas and things like that where they have younger soils and they're at risk of, of causing permanent damage to those to their soil. And so really I, would, I just wanted to take some time to kind of go through what that means and what that process is of mining potassium out of the soil and what the long-term harm could be if it's continued to be done without you know not taking time or not taking years to replace that potassium so that's what potassium mining is you know short story or, you know long story there but it is definitely something to kind of keep keep an eye on and definitely you know is something to be concerned about don't want to raise too many alarms. It's not like the end of the, the world here. We're just a, a year or two of doing it. But if it continues to happen, there's real concern there. Anyway, this is 20-some minutes into my second take of this rant and ramble because I forgot to get my mouse or not my uh, microphone hooked up correctly. So anyway, that's where we're at today. We'll keep going in March and April and as we go through the season and try to have a monthly ramble kind of talking about in-season issues, weather and pest related and everything else as things kind of pop up. As always, I'm looking for topics and suggestions and guest hosts. Shout out to Kyle and Lee who both volunteered to help me out with some upcoming episodes. So hopefully we'll see both of them in the next couple of weeks. Kyle, I think to talk about certified naturally grown process and Lee to she's going to talk about seed priming and seed sanitation with hydrogen peroxide and and some other options for managing uh, seed quality and starting seeds. And then next week, we have Luke talking about transplant production. So again, thank you everybody for listening today. This podcast was supported in part by the USDA Ag Marketing Service Transition to Organic Partnership Program and the University of Arkansas Division of Agriculture. Until next week, everybody, have a great day.